The election system that delivered him to the White House, however, is broken. Hillary Clinton won nearly three million more votes. Makes the strongest case in history why the electoral college is, is obsolete. How critical is turnout? Money in politics. Extreme partisan gerrymandering. Dark money. We will continue to win, win, win. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson, and we are thrilled to be here with so many of our friends and fans. This is coming live from Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, the heartland of America. And we are excited to have this live audience today. So much of this show is about dialogue between Heather and me and our guests. And really, it's a dialogue between all of you and us as well. Every week, Heather and I... I try to make sense of the noise uh, and anger and haste of public debate. Uh, Freak Out and Carry On is um, something that everybody, I think, understands in America. I'm not sure if many of you have banished your cell phone from the bedroom, but I have on my wife's advice, because I'm getting up at 5 in the morning, and I'm starting to scroll, and I'm a mess by 8 o'clock. So what we do each week is we try to make sense and bring perspective and context, historical context, to the events of the day, because this American history has been long, complex, often full of episode and incident from which we have learned as a people. Heather, you have studied this over the years, America, in its long sweep across two-plus centuries. Um, What do you think about when you think about democracy now? versus what you may have thought about it a decade ago? Well, I believe in democracy. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what I study. That's why I spend the time I do teaching and writing. And I believe that like uh, the North Star, we have to believe in democracy. But there is no doubt that at times in our history, it has been under siege. And we are in one of those times now, probably if not the most dangerous time for America, at least the second most. And we're running neck and neck with the 1850s right now with the Civil War. That being said, in each of our crisis periods, and there have been uh, at least four of them, we do always manage to come out. And we come out because fundamentally Americans, I think, have common sense and they believe in the concept of human self-determination. And they rediscover that after a period when they have lost their ability to run their own government. And I think I think we're looking at that right now. We are fortunate, thereby, to have our guest tonight, uh, Larry Lessig. Lawrence, to many of you, Larry to me, he's an old friend. Uh, Larry is a signature actor on the political landscape. He is a professor of law and leadership here at Harvard Law School. He's the author of Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop It. First came out in 2011, then was redone in 2015. But many of you know Larry as a key activist in changing the electoral systems in the United States. Uh, He has not just talked it, he's walked it, and he has acted on the public stage. And that's why we are delighted to have with us Larry Lessig. Larry, uh, this 2016 presidential election, uh, still fresh in our minds and souls, showed many of us, very starkly, that our electoral system is damaged, perhaps even broken at its foundations. Uh, You and Donald Trump, though, agree on one thing. 
that the system is rigged. <laughs> Why don't you elaborate on that? I remember back in 2015 when Trump was making his run, Larry then was the senior uh, uh, ethicist here at Harvard, head of Harvard's Center for Ethics. I was a senior fellow, and Larry talked to me about what he saw in Donald Trump that surprised him, maybe even encouraged him. Tell me about those days early. Yeah, well, you know, who knows what Donald Trump really thinks? We only know what he says. And early in the campaign, he realized that he had an extraordinary opportunity to embarrass his Republican rivals by embracing the anti-corruption message and attacking the corrupting influence of money in politics. And that was extremely important in the arc of eventually solving this problem, if we can speak hopefully, because um, we will never solve this if it's perceived as a partisan issue. If we think that the Democrats want to fix it and the Republicans don't, then it will never get fixed. So the idea that the person who was becoming the leading Republican candidate in the Republican nomination for president was attacking super PACs and attacking everybody up else on stage because he said they are all bought. He knew he bought them. The donors, the special interests, the lobbyists have very strong power over these people. I'm spending all of my money. I'm not spending, I'm not getting any. I turned down, I, I turned down so much. I could have right now from special interests and donors, I could have double and triple what he's got. I've turned it down. I've turned down last week, $5 million from somebody. So I will tell you, I understand the game. I've been on the other side all of my life and they have a lot of control over our politicians was an amazing moment of hope, um, followed by endless reasons for tears. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I wonder about now, Larry, is do you think that Trump may someday bend uh, toward some of the popularity, some of the political capital that he was drawing back in 2015, saying exactly what you're talking about now? Many people in America feel politics is gangrened with money, which is part of what you have drawn as your support. No, that's exactly right. Um, there was an extraordinary study released in the middle of 2016 by the uh, University of Maryland, which found the frustration that Americans have with their government is higher than it has ever been in the history of polling of our government. And the most striking feature of this study was that there was no statistical difference between Republicans and Democrats on this point. This is the one common frustrated, frustrated feeling Americans have that we should be able to leverage, and I think that's partly what accounted for maybe one-fifth of Trump's voters who were chanting the drain the swamp mantra, that they thought maybe this guy, the guy that all the insiders hate, maybe this guy will have the power to actually blow up the system and change this corruption. So Larry, let's look here. Your big thing lately has been the Electoral College. And of course, the fact that Donald Trump won in the Electoral College and overwhelmingly lost the popular vote is still very much on a lot of people's minds. Can you walk us through uh, what you are thinking about the Electoral College and why you see that as the answer to saving where we are now, as opposed to necessarily taking on gerrymandering or voter suppression or the extraordinary overuse of ads in this last election? Why is Electoral College where you're putting all your energies right now? Well, I wouldn't say it's as opposed to any of the things you described. Um, you know, one of the things that this campaign that I was involved with drove me to recognize is 
The issue that I had been focused on forever, money and politics, was just one example of the way citizens in America are not equal. Um, it's one, maybe the most extreme example, because literally there are 100,000 people that congressmen spend 30 to 70% of their time calling, begging for money, creating this reality where those people have extraordinary power and the rest of America doesn't. We've got to recognize that our democracy does not represent us equally. It doesn't give us an equal voice. We are denied the simple promise of a representative democracy that we are all politically equal. And we've got to find a way to build a movement to take that equality on. Then came the election and the Electoral College became the most salient example of this inequality. It is the place where it's easiest for people to see. We've built a system that basically says to America's voters, if you happen to be a Republican in Massachusetts or a Republican in California or a Democrat in Texas, you literally do not matter to the presidential campaigns. And we know this by the behavior of the presidential campaigns. 14 states accounted for 99% of campaign spending in the last election cycle. Those 14 states accounted for 95% of where the, the candidates spent their time. The other 5% they were in California and New York raising money from rich people. So the point is the system has been built. We've allowed it to, to develop such that the simple promise of a democracy that we are equal has been denied. Heather, tell us about the history of the Electoral College, because there has been controversy about the Electoral College, especially in terms of someone who loses the popular vote and then becomes the president across a century. Tell us the history that brings us to this moment now. Well, so what this is what's so interesting to me about your work with the Electoral College is we've had this happen four times before, where we have a president who is elected in the Electoral College and loses the popular vote. And everybody knows about Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876. Yeah. Um, who it's lost. a miniseries on HBO in the fall, so you'll see. You'll love it. You'll we'll love do that it. one after we do the musical, right? Right. Um, but but the the one of the ones that interests me most is 1888 when Benjamin Harrison loses the popular vote um, by 100,000 votes, not a small amount, to Grover Cleveland, actually, who's already in the White House and who has to move out of the White House, and he's not a happy camper about that. And then, of course, it happens in Bush v. Gore in 2000 and Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton in 2016. But what's interesting to me, especially about the 1888 uh, issue is that in each one of these eras, what we've got is the system no longer reflecting the will of the people. And what happens in 1876 is that the president who takes over tries to go middle of the road and has a somewhat successful pre uh, presidency, but the other three decide that because they have won with a minority of the popular vote, they've been anointed by God, and they take the bit in their teeth and they run with it, and they pass laws that the vast majority of Americans hate. And what's interesting to me about that is when that happens, they have to do a number of things to stay in power. They suppress the vote, they pack the courts, they gerrymander, and at one point, actually, from 1889 to 1890, we get six new states to make sure the Republicans will never lose the Electoral College again. That's why we have South Dakota and North Dakota right now. Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and Washington State are all there to pack the Electoral College for the Republicans in 1889 to 1890. But the reason that interests me is because... If you look at the present moment, it looks very much like that. And what happened, especially after the debacle of 1888, 
is the American people stepped up and the backlash against that, the insistence on taking the country back gave us not only Teddy Roosevelt coming from within the Republican Party and saying, this ain't my party and this is not my country, we got to reform it. We get this extraordinary backlash where people use the media to take the country back over and we get out of that one of our most progressive eras in American history called, you'll be shocked to hear, the progressive era. So I look at that and I think, I think we're looking at something very similar. But the question is, to throw it back to Larry, how do we get there? Is it simply saying let's dump the electoral college or is it something that's much broader? Well, I don't know how we get there. I'm not convinced we do get there. I'm not sure it's a solvable problem. You know, republics don't live forever. And we might be facing that moment where we realize we've kind of crossed the line. Um, but my own view is we don't have the right to assume or to act on that assumption. We have to fight no matter how difficult or impossible. We've got to do what we can do. And so what I see the fight around the Electoral College as doing is trying to wake people up to the recognition that they actually should be demanding what you'd think a democracy would give them, equal standing as a citizen. Um, now, we're not trying to fight the Electoral College in, a, in the broad sense. We're not against the Electoral College, even though I would not pick it if I had the choice. What we're fighting is not something in the Constitution. We're fighting something the states have added to the system, something called winner-take-all. So that's what makes it so that if you win the state of... Uh, Wisconsin by you know, 10,000 votes, you get all of the electors from the state of Wisconsin. Or if a million people vote for Donald Trump in Massachusetts, Donald Trump still gets zero electors from Massachusetts. That system of winner-take-all um, does three really critical things. Number one, it focuses presidential campaigns on the small slice of battleground states, which are you know, that 35% of America in battleground states are whiter, they're older, they have an industry from the 19th century. They deserve to be represented like anybody else, but no more than anybody else. So that's number one. Number two, we should not forget, forget that two of the last three presidents inaugurated lost the popular vote. And according to the numbers we see, given the way demographics are shifting, at least 30% of presidents going forward are going to be selected by the Electoral College after losing the popular vote. And this, again, is because of winner-take-all. And then number three, something that is just recently becoming quite salient, if you, wanted to, if you were the Russians and you wanted to design a system... Hypothetically yeah, speaking, yeah. but continue, yeah. You wanted to design a system to maximize your power to hack the American political presidential selection... Odd idea, fascinating, yeah. keep going. Uh, you could not pick a better system because this system is designed... To be hacked. To be hacked. And the only way to avoid, to protect it against that potential for hacking is to end the winner-take-all system. So that's why we're attacking that slice of the problem. But hold on a second. Let's sit rubber on the road a little bit. Say something, Larry, about an initiative that you and David Boyce and other super lawyers are leading right now uh, to make change. Just give us a, a little right, bit so, about that. Right. So, you know, 10 months ago after that election, I started talking to a bunch of people about, you know, how do we fix this? What do we do? And we put together a plan of a lawsuit that I then tried to shop around to foundations and to lawyers, and all of them said, this is totally insane. This would never work. You will never win. I'm not going to waste my time on yet another crazy idea of Larry Lessig. So um, 
So then uh, about uh, six weeks ago, we said, okay, let's just go to the internet and let's say, let's raise the money we need to get going. I said, we, need, we raise a quarter of a million dollars, we'll be able to have the infrastructure we need to file these lawsuits. A week after we launched that campaign, I spoke to David Boyce and David Boyce said, it's a hard case to win, but we should win because we are right. And oh, by the way, the reason we should win is a case called Bush versus Gore. The rule announced in Bush versus Gore, if applied to this case, means we win. And so I said to David, David, imagine the joy of standing before the Supreme Court and saying, because of Bush versus Gore, you now have to strike down winner take all in the Electoral College. And he said, it would be beautiful. It would be beautiful. So David Boyce agreed to lead the legal challenge. And uh, we're going to launch, um, I can't say the specifics, but we're going to launch, I think, by the end of the year, um, a, a legal attack that um, people don't quite yet recognize. And I'm you know, it's always been understood to be a long shot, but it's not quite the long shot I thought it was before. So so speaking of Bush v. Gore, one of the great things about doing this podcast is that I get to ask questions of the people who were actually in the rooms, especially Ron, whose work I knew long before I actually met him. And he was uh, on the ground during the Bush v. Gore campaign. And I'm actually interested not only in what happened, but what was it like to be in Washington in the midst of all that? Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, Bush v. Gore ends up being a moment that sort of stunned everybody because uh, you felt as though uh, things that were just part of the block and tackle of policy uh, were taken out of the hands of all of those institutions that you cover in Washington, the political debate, angry, divided though it was, and it was ending up in some counties in Florida. Here in Florida, the presidential contest gets tighter by the hour. With the new counts going on, ABC News has an unofficial tally now that George Bush leads by 279 votes. When there were debates over hanging chads, remember the hanging chads? The first one is called the dimpled chad. That is that there is an indentation in the chad. The voter put some pressure on it, but didn't detach it at all from the ballot, not counted. The final category is the pregnant chad. That is, the chad was pierced with a hole, but not detached at all. Those were not counted. Now, the Republicans here, Koki, seized on all of this confusion. They said, see, we told you, this is a deeply flawed process. It must stop. And it's interesting. One of the things that I think we pretty much knew up to that point uh, covering politics, certainly during the 90s, was that uh, there is an imbalance in terms of tactical forcefulness between the two parties. I'll just be very frank about it. The Republicans are simply more tactically clear-eyed and forceful. You know, the Democrats get mixed up often uh, under a line, which I think is an important area of principle, the tactics define character. We're not going to embrace an ends justify the means approach. The Republicans just laugh when they hear that. And the fact is they've triumphed because of it. And generally, winners do write history. What happened in Bush v. Gore is as soon as Florida locked up. Gore has to have Florida, 25 electoral votes there. Uh, the Bush uh, crowd sent down a crack team. They did a couple things. First, they acted as though they already were elected president. Very smart. But you also remember what we were covering at the time. You know, my friends in the Fourth Estate were very focused on how odd it was that so many Jewish voters from Boca Raton were voting for Pat Buchanan. Remember that? 
my mother lives in the polo club in Boca, by the way. So uh, that was the story that carried the day. People missed the fact that significant numbers of African Americans were disenfranchised in the state. And the numbers of a U.S. commission that occurred a couple years later were quite stunning. Let's get right to it. 90% of African Americans were voting for Al Gore. Uh, based on a distillation of the numbers, that meant 4,752 black Gore voters, almost nine times Bush's ultimate margin of victory of 500-odd votes, uh, were prevented from voting. And it is not a stretch to conclude that that purge cost Gore the election. The commission said it was outcome determinative. Now, you look at that and you're like, look at that tactics, especially in the divided land we're living in politically, where you've got two big teams, red and blue. It's often just a few votes that make the difference in Larry's winner-take-all system, not Larry's system, the one that I think many of us are saying, hmm, how's that working? It matters when you get a couple counties without voting machines that are working. It matters when people simply go to the polls and say, I need a birth certificate? I mean, how many people here have a birth certificate handy? Like, I don't, or a passport. Many people in America don't have a passport. They don't leave America. Just by virtue of making those, those many wouldn't mind leaving. But uh, just based on that, a whole bunch of voters simply lose their rights as citizens. These things matter. We have a president, Donald Trump. When you look at the play of districts in Wisconsin, in Michigan, Oh, it's just a few votes that made the difference. There's another, uh, a number of ways in which the system right now seems to be rigged. And there's a lot that I would like to ask Larry, not least about dark money, for example. But I think what everybody's on, is on everybody's mind right now is gerrymandering. Um, Gerrymandering is a system that's been around since the Jeffersonian era. It was actually under Elbridge Gerry, was a, a governor of Massachusetts under uh, Jefferson. And he signed into law the Massachusetts system of cutting up districts in such a way that politicians chose their voters rather than voters choosing their politicians. And right now we're waiting to hear how the Supreme Court is going to rule on this in um, Gilby-Whitford, which challenges gerrymandering on partisan lines in Wisconsin. You know, you're a Harvard Law professor. What should we be looking for in this case, and how do you think it's going to come out? Well, I lay out the case for folks who haven't read about it. You know, the court has, for a long time, address the question of what rules should constrain the legislators as they draw districts for these winner-take-all single-member congressional districts and state districts as well. And for a long time, the big fight was about, you know, how could race or how should race matter? And all the law is about basically to make sure that you don't draw lines to exclude people on the basis of race. And throughout that, people have said, well, is there also a concern about politics, drawing lines solely to benefit the party in power. And what the court has said again and again is, well, in theory, it's a good complaint. It's a sort of thing we ought to be worried about. But we don't have any real test, or there's no obvious way for us to pick out the improper efforts to embed political power from proper line drawing that happens to embed political power. And what happened in this case is that um, a bunch of uh, researchers, scholars, political scientists out of the University of Chicago basically came up with a test, a pretty simple way to identify when there is 
an extreme distortion being caused by the lines that the legislature is drawing. And Wisconsin was a really extreme example of this, because basically they told the line drawers, the computer people, to go and draw lines. And again and again, they would bring the lines back, and the legislators would say, it's not, it's not good enough. And they'd go back and try it again. And they would draw it more and more and more to guarantee that never would a Democrat win. So if you were ever going to have an extreme case, this was an extreme case. Um, but I'm not actually optimistic that even in this extreme case, the court's going to conclude that there's a constitutional problem. And the reason is actually something Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts said. So in the course of oral argument, he said, If you're the intelligent man on the street and the court issues a decision and let's say, okay, the Democrats win, and that person will say, well, why did the Democrats win? And the answer is going to be, because EG was greater than 7%, where EG is the sigma of party X wasted votes minus the sigma of party Y wasted votes over the sigma of party X votes plus party Y votes. And the intelligent man on the street is going to say, that's a bunch of baloney. It must be because the Supreme Court preferred the Democrats over the Republicans. And that is going to cause very serious harm to the status uh, and integrity of the decisions of this court in the eyes of the country. And the point he's making is that if these tests are so complicated, so subject to interpretation and subjective judgments, people can't help but believe that the court is acting for political reasons, not for legal reasons. And so the court itself is trying to protect itself from that charge, that they're behaving purely politically. And I fear that the justices are just too confused by the standard, even though I think it's a great and powerful standard, that they might in the end just say, I'm sorry, it's too hard for us. Before we jump off the court, uh, there's some thinking, though, that Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote still in the court, was was uh, maybe leaning toward um, the, uh, let's just say, the liberal quartet. Yeah, um, and he is the one who has signaled that there could, in his mind, be a test, and he might be thinking, this is my last chance to make that test work. But let's be clear about what the consequence of this would be. I mean, I hope that they win. I hope that we find a way to strike down gerrymandering that's politically motivated. But it will only apply in the extreme cases. It's not going to apply across the board. And so I think we should be talking about the real reforms that could fix gerrymandering, not the court-driven reforms that will only ever solve the, you know, 10% of the most extreme cases. Are we where we are with gerrymandering? Because with the rise of computers and, and the ability of scientists to divide a block according literally to house by house, that we're in a place politically because of digital technology that we simply don't know how to handle yet, not only in the fact we can address gerrymandering, but the fact that we can now gerrymander to the degree we could have in the way we couldn't have in the 1870s when someone just said, oh yeah, that neighborhood tends to vote Democratic. Now they literally can say, this is a Republican house, this is a Democratic house, let's divide it right down the middle. Is that what we're looking at, that democracy is being overawed by... Technology. Uh, before we get to the digital age, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Heather and Larry. This is Freak Out and Carry On. All right, we're back. Heather poses this question, Larry. Uh, as to the changes that the digital age portends, uh, how do you how do you map that? 
Well, it's certainly true that what happened in 2010 after the last um, census was that the Republicans were miles ahead of the Democrats in using really sophisticated big data to figure out how to draw districts in an incredibly powerful way to basically give them more power than their votes would demand. So nationally, we know that more people vote um, consistently uh, Democrat, but um, still the Democrats don't get the value of that vote because of the uh, way the districts are drawn. Because of gerrymandering, we bias Congress towards the extremes. The safe seat gerrymandering that we have that I think means that no more than 40 seats in the, uh, out of uh, 435 are actually competitive. The safe seat gerrymandering we have means that in those safe seats, the only person who could challenge you, if you're a congressperson, is a more extreme version of your party. So if you're a Republican in a safe seat Republican district, the Democrat will never beat you. But it might be that a further right Republican in the Republican primary could primary you out. The same thing with Democrats. So this single member district system is part of what leads to this really polarized, highly fragile House of Representatives. And we could change that overnight. Congress could change that with a simple statute. So one of the things that some congressmen I talked to say, fearing just what you're talking about, Larry, their challenge from either the left flank or the right flank, is an urge to say, we got to change the system because ultimately we are going to face that. I'm going to face that in my seat. And even if I've got one of those uh, beautifully gerrymandered safe seats, I'm not feeling it's as safe as I used to feel it was. These, this is the kind of self-interest that often drives change in Washington. But this is a way in which their underlying security is being challenged by extremism from both sides. But that does, to me, bring up the real question that I think people are wondering about today. And that's like, how do you make it happen? Like, you know, are we waiting for the pendulum to swing or is there some way to make it happen? And is that driven from the top or is it driven from the bottom? Personally, I think it's driven by the, from the bottom and it's driven by the way people talk about politics and it's driven by the way the media works. But I'm going to throw that one now back to Larry because, of course, with the modern digital era, the media has changed dramatically. And we now know that we have had Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, all leverage to produce what is fair to say is false, lies, uh, things that are not real. One might even say fake news. And the question is, what do we do about that? You see, I, I think the scary thing is that the problem is much more fundamental. And the problem is we live in different worlds. I mean, you joked at the beginning here we are in the heartland of America, in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. But this is a fundamental fact that makes it incredibly difficult to address these problems so long as these problems are framed in partisan ways. This is why I, I think we've got to find a way to rise above the partisan around this. Because if it's in a partisan frame, then people in their little bubbles get their spin on the issue, and their spin is just different from the other side's spin, and they don't even know of the other side. In, in 2014, when we were polling about what messaging might really work with Republicans to get them to see the corruption of super PACs, and one of the people we um, polled about were the Koch brothers. And you know, the question was, you know, look at what the Koch brothers are doing, spending hundreds of millions of dollars to buy elections um, doesn't that trouble you? Uh, because what we know is Republicans, just like Democrats, think the system is corrupted. And what was so amazing 
was that Republicans didn't even know who the Koch brothers were. And that's because Fox News doesn't use those words, the Koch brothers. And so they live in a world where they don't know anything about one of the biggest examples of this problem because they've, they've been constructed into the space where they, where they can't even engage in it. Um, and Facebook and social media makes this worse because we all find the need to identify with our tribe. And we use these platforms to signal our identifications with our tribe. So if you're a Republican, you're never going to raise your hand and say, I believe in global warming. You're not going to say that on Facebook. You'll be like completely trashed by everybody. If you're a Democrat or a liberal, you're not going to raise your hand and say, I don't see the problem with GMOs. I just don't see the problem. Now, in both cases, the fact is the science is pretty much established that there is a global warming problem and the GMO stuff is not as serious as some of us would like to believe. But the point is we have constructed these worlds where we can't even understand the facts because the facts have now been divided and made partisan in a way that makes it hard for us to even acknowledge the other side. So, you know, the reason why in the, this is great work by Marcus Pryor from Princeton, the reason why in the 60s and 70s, we had a nation that was focused on three great broadcasters telling the story of the nation every night on the national news, was that there was nothing else to look at. <laughs> Television was addictive. Everybody watched it. And they just watched this tiny slice of news. And the news was right down the middle. It didn't cover all sorts of things it should have covered, but it was right down the middle. And everybody had the same set of facts before I them. absolutely agree. No doubt about that. Uh, you know, no doubt that 30 million people watching, that's the way it is yeah. every night, maybe not have been the best thing. And we all know that now, no, considering no, no, I, all we digest. But I'm not going to say that's a, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but the reality is when you move from that world where we all have the same facts before us to a world where we all have radically different facts before us, the project of democracy which is us all working together to solve the problems that are before us becomes infinitely more difficult. Well, yeah, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking I'm going to I'm going to be the Pollyanna over here and say that I came in tonight being the freak out one, which is usually I'm the carry on person. We kind of swapped this. <laughs> uh, but the new technologies, I, I agree with you, Larry. I think that, that we are in a crisis, as we have been, as I say a number of times before, a crisis of democracy. But in the past, when we get new technologies that change the way we, we manipulate news, we get a resurgence of a new voice in America. And what really jumps out at me is, sorry, again, the 1890s. The, the Republican administration and the establishment in Washington, D.C. did not know what hit them in the election of 1890 when the Republicans were wiped out of the House of Representatives, lost the Senate, and soon were going to lose the White House because they did not understand that the populists had discovered a new way to make newspapers. They literally were not reading those newspapers. And the people who were speaking were farmers, and they were white men, but they were also black farmers, and they were women. And one of the things that I keep harping on in this particular democratic cycle is that with the rise of the new technologies, especially Facebook and Twitter, you have a lot of voices capturing oxygen that couldn't even 10 years ago. And it seems to me, if you look at the people who are now leading the resistance and calling themselves the resistance, we know they are overwhelmingly female and people of color. And so I see 
not only a resurgence of democracy, but I also see a new technology being used by a different group of people whose voices really have been silenced in this whole government is the problem, not the solution thing since 1980 and want that government, in fact, to do things. Well, you know, I spent many years as a cheerleader for digital technologies. Um, an apologist, infinitely optimistic about all the great things digital technology was going to be. And indeed, at the very birth, you know, the book that I wrote, 1999, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, talked about how this technology was going to empower all sorts of speakers who had been marginalized before, and it's a fantastic thing. But what none of us were thinking about, it's the implicit value of editors in this mix, right, of people who actually need to decide, are we gonna allow this to be said or not based on whether it's plausibly true or not? And what we've seen as we've seen this technology develop is more and more speech that is basically speech without an editor. Um, or not just an editor, or not just a, uh, maybe it has no human editor, it increasingly has a digital editor. I mean, one of the most striking news stories from about eight weeks ago was when ProPublica, one of the great new news uh, organizations, was able to buy ads on Facebook targeting Jew haters. Jew hater. They could pay money and buy Jew hater ads. Now, that's not because there was anybody in Facebook who typed in a category called Jew haters and decided to target them. It's because their AI, their machine, had listened to what people were saying and discovered there was a category called Jew haters that they could make money if they sold things to. And so the point is, this is not a human editor, this is the machine editor. And what the machine editor is doing is just giving people what they want. And if the people are increasingly segmented into these niche markets, then giving them what they want is not building the platform for democratic understanding and that, I think, is the core problem, which optimism from the 1890s just does not solve. And there's no way to solve that, you think? The well, idea that, that you could, for why is it not possible to, for example, flag news stories that we know are false, or flag news stories that we know are being produced by bots in Russia, which, you, I mean, we know that's happening. Why is that an impossible technology when, in fact, all you have to do is call out the, the cell phone number of a private citizen and Twitter's got you off in, in seconds? Why can't they do that with IP addresses from Russia? Well, they certainly can and they certainly will. And I know from talking to people inside of Facebook, they've got all, all sorts of new ideas about how they can censor the content that people consume on Facebook. But, you know, this is not... You know, the alternative here is not that much better either. I mean, do we really want a world where, you know, there are corporations sitting in the space where they're deciding what content is going to flow and what content is not going to flow like this, right? Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not saying there's not a solution. In fact, I've written it in a book and I'm going to sell the book later. Um, um, so I'm not going to tell you the solution now. But the, I'm not saying there's not a solution. I'm just saying it is a really hard problem that has to start by recreating some feeling that there is a government to trust or there's a reason to trust what democracy does. And so, and so long as we don't address that, and as long as especially Democrats think that all they gotta do is come up with 10-point plans for how we're gonna solve every problem, um, I fear we're not gonna be able to overcome this deep cynicism, this deep skepticism that is making it so most people just want to turn out. Well, you know, we have uh, gone across 
the length and breadth of a set of questions here as to uh, how we define ourselves as a people. And one of the things I think that we find, uh, especially on nights like this, is this recognition that the miracle of democracy is uh, that it is a participatory form of government. When these awesomely powerful people with their hands on the levers that guide the ship of state are in fact called public servants, servants of us. And I am hopeful that we will make demands of them as time unfolds to do what we are here constitutionally ordained to do, which is make them serve the interests of all people in the United States. So that's my hopeful finish. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you, Larry Lessig, the signature actor and professor here at Harvard Law School, and Heather Cox Richardson, my favorite historian. And thanks for joining us on Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Susskind. We want to thank our team tonight. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our special thanks today to Amy McDonald, Candace Springer, and John Parati from WBUR who helped with this event. Music for the podcast is courtesy of APM, and our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.